0: money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high profile interviews and thought provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Welcome to
1: Coindesk's Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. This show will be an ongoing exploration of the technological, political, and social forces reshaping our financial system. To start that journey, we'll treat this inaugural edition as a stage setter. We're going to address the show's name because when we say we want to reimagine money, it turns out we're going to the heart of the matter. Imagination has always been a key part of what money is. Imagination, in the form of cultural creativity, is also something that the cryptocurrency community has in spades. Any newbie entering the space for the first time will encounter a host of unique, unfamiliar terms and ideas. What does hodl mean? Why the obsession with a honey badger? Amid the swirling madhouse of decentralized finance, better known as DeFi, people now talk about yield farming, about DeFi degens, short for degenerates, and every second token appears to be named for food, sushi, yams, hot dogs. Crypto has its own breed of iconography. It's found in Twitter propagated memes such as Money Printer Go Brrr and rare Pepe digital artwork. It has its own hip-hop songs, its token-obsessed tribes, its Genesis myths, and mysterious unidentified founders, including its godhead, Satoshi. In short, crypto looks very much like a cult. And to the outsider, that can be a reason to dismiss it as frivolous, as something built on nothing, or worse, as a con, a scam. To dismiss it for these reasons, though, is to ignore that all money is imagined. That piece of paper in your wallet with Benjamin Franklin's face and all that ornate imagery on it, it doesn't have much practical value. You could use it as a bookmark, maybe, make a paper plane out of it, or write a very small amount of information in very small print on it. But none of those uses add up to $100 in utility. A banknote's value comes purely from our shared imagination. It's only because the payer and the payee have both invested their beliefs in the value of this piece of paper, that it functions as an instrument for clearing debts. Money, says the historian Yuval Harari, is the greatest story ever told. But if it sounds unnerving to reduce this all-powerful institution to something made up, note that Harari also reminds us that storytelling is the essence of civilization. Our capacity to believe in shared stories has allowed us to create institutions such as religion, nation-states, and corporations. All of those imagined concepts that have helped us organize society in very important, powerful ways. So, far from being frivolous, the incessant semiotic production in crypto reflects the efforts of the community and its many competing sub-communities to create common meaning around themselves and imbue their preferred form of money with power. To explore this, we'll be joined later in the show by media studies professor Lana Swartz and multimedia artist Nikki Enright. Before we get to them, let me introduce my co host for this show and for all the hundreds we plan to do after this one, Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum. Hi, Sheila.
2: Hey, Michael.
1: All right, so Sheila, you are out west, I'm out east. We're living quite different lives with uh, the current moment. (laughs) Can you give us uh, a bit of a real life account of what this experience with these horrendous fires has been like?
2: I'm in San Francisco. And how does one even begin to describe? I mean, I think that there were many images shared all over social media of our Blade Runner sky, our just orange sky days where we had really no light. My daughter called it the worst eclipse ever, which I think is exactly right. <laughs> it was deeply disorienting. Yeah. And in the middle of, you know, pandemic and with an election coming upon us and with a lot of civil unrest, it very much felt like the straw that broke the camel's back to just not have access to a natural light source <laughs> for days on end.
1: It was truly apocalyptic, right? I mean, just this. Somebody told me that they felt like they were living on Mars, you know, this sort of bright red sky. And I think my, favorite Twitter moment on this. There was a photo of somebody looking at their phone with a mask on and a deep red sky behind them. And the tweet said something like, imagine having to tell your 2019 self that, (laughs) oh, that mask that that person's wearing, it's got nothing to do with the red sky. That's for something else.
2: Exactly (laughs) right. The compounding effect here is unreal. You know, I think a lot, my husband and I were talking about like, what are we going to tell our forget our grandkids, like we have a baby, right? So what are we going to tell her about living through this time, which she hopefully won't remember whatsoever? And how do you even describe just the sense of just how surreal it is that every month there's just a new thing that kind of emerges that is massively disruptive to your ordinary ways of, of living and being in the world? Not to mention, I think, you know, we really faced there was a mental health crisis happening on the west coast and parts of, of the of the state now that are still we fortunately have blue skies today although that's meant to be temporary apparently from what i hear but certainly oregon washington southern california these places people have not been able to see the sky you know for days it really does have an impact and this is documented in other parts of the world for sure it's a lot <laughs>
1: it probably really goes deep into our you know evolutionary psyche. Absence Lizard of brain, sky, sure. right? Lizard, Lizard brain, brain. Gets somehow affected by the absence of sky. I think that's a really, really interesting and important point. So you know, yeah, apocalyptic images, uh, <laughs> you know, a sense that something big is afoot, right? That's kind of appropriate in some respects. As a rather eerie but but relevant segue to what the the, the big meta themes of what this piece is all about we're not you know necessarily going to be focused all about you know what's happening with wildfire management and exploding trees or whatever but we are certainly interested in this idea that these events that we're experiencing right now are changing the structure of our society they're challenging our institutions they are affecting confidence and that with that i think you know money is one of the big ones to be put to the test for years once i got interested in Bitcoin. You know, I felt like people would always come back and say, yeah, but it's not backed by anything. Like, there's nothing real to it. It's just a bunch of ones and zeros, unlike the dollar. It was always sort of interesting to then engage in the conversation. Well, do you realize that all money is kind of unbacked, even gold, right? Because what is the value of gold, if not a social construct?
2: We've seen over the course of this pandemic cycle, and I can't even believe it's been what, seven months now, or I don't even, like, you can't even mm-hmm. keep track, right? Yeah where we don't feel we can rely on public institutions to provide adequate track and trace, to provide effective access to personal protective equipment. Our healthcare system was overloaded at times early in this pandemic. We were able to sort that out, but it took a long time to kind of think that through and how we could restructure some of our health services. And then let's ground that in, you know, we can't even rely on the sky out here mm-hmm. on the West, but we can't even rely on a light source that's going to kind of set our circadian rhythm and provide grounding for us. It is really not a leap, I think, to go into what other public institutions are really failing us. And by us, you know, I think that we have to kind of acknowledge that the burden is not born equally. It's important to recognize that the burden of the healthcare system was not borne equally by the rich and the poor or by country to country. And certainly I think the problems or failings of the financial system, the monetary system, are not born equally as well. But really what it comes down to is that we have the suspension of disbelief. We take certain things for granted all the time. And among them are things like the sun will come up. It will not be bright orange. The smoke will eventually clear, right? Like these are things we just kind of take as axioms. Similarly, we put our full faith and credit. And then we use that. That's a phrase that is really meaningful in American jurisprudence we put our full faith and credit in things like the US dollar or the currency of the country where we live. And certainly there are examples around the world where that proved to be a very foolish thing to do. <laughs> Hyperinflation and other examples going you know, to prove the lie. So the idea that something like a digital currency, a cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, whatever it may be, you know, that, it is, that it is somehow absurd to imagine that over time that's going to develop its own credibility. And in fact, over time didn't really take all that long, I would argue, for a certain segment of the population that the idea that that is somehow fanciful is is ridiculous, because we do it all the time. And so this is just a new way of thinking about how we can open up some of our systems. And can we apply that same suspension of disbelief that we put into other things to this place?
1: I love the fact that you use the term suspension of disbelief, because the flip side of that is actually the word belief, right? I mean, you suspend disbelief to believe and it's the believing in this thing. I constantly, I'm like a Yuval Harari groupie, I've got to admit. I love the way he framed this. Reading Sapiens just really changed the way I think about things. But like that act of belief, of storytelling, the shared story around it is the most important thing. That's what makes society work. The collective belief, right?
2: I think that's right. Being students of history is always important. It's something I try to really impart to my children. Like it's important to just study history. I was almost a history major. I was not. I was an economics major, which is not that different in some ways. But I was watching actually an episode of Drunk History, and I started Googling something. I went down a rabbit hole a couple of weeks ago. Great show. Phenomenal. But I went down a rabbit hole just on Paul Revere for a variety of reasons. And things I did not realize were that Paul Revere, so in thinking about American history, was critical to the minting of the first money in the United States, the Continental, which you might be familiar with, but I was like obsessed with this like years and years ago. The Continental became absolutely worthless. It was used to fund the revolution, the American Revolution. It was produced by the colonies, I think Massachusetts, and it was totally worthless after that kind of use case. So that was the first foray though into this brand new country that wasn't even yet a country that was fighting, you know, England and trying to gain independence and all of that, into thinking like how are we going to do this? And it was the belief of these colonists, these colonials, that they were actually going to be able to fund this war, they were going to succeed, they were going to obtain independence. That kind of fueled both the independence movement and achieved that goal but then led to the establishment of the US mint and coin production and it was considered very important for the early United States to have their own means of minting currency that was considered critical and so since 1793 that I know for a fact cuz I read this there has been american currency in circulation that's gone through multiple iterations over the course of time
1: what's really interesting that there is the emergence of a new political community an entity that has its own power and the importance of money as a component of that, we're going to have a great conversation, I hope, with, with Lada Swartz about some of this, about how the formation of community and the conversations that get built around money are part of this. Because I really think that's what's going on in the crypto community. Like, because as much as this is not the formation of a new nation, although there are folks who are trying to create these bit nation concepts, right? But nonetheless, it is a governed community with its own value set.
2: That's right.
1: Each protocol has a set of values associated with it. The formation, of these value systems, these belief systems become really important. The one thing that I find, though, a little just weird, is like how this process of creating something to believe in requires us almost to just buy into the myths of their being actually tangible. So the fact that mining, like Bitcoin mining, is described as mining alludes to the metalist idea that Bitcoin is actually like gold, because we have to believe that it's backed by something to actually sort of make the myth work and the belief system work around this otherwise truly valueless thing, if you talk about its intrinsic practical value, then you require this language, this deep cultural conversation to hark back to these deep-seated notions of where value comes from. I just find that really fascinating. It's also a little bit of a conflict because out of that comes property rights arguments and store of value versus medium of exchange arguments and all of that stuff that gets really political, libertarians versus those of us who really want to see this build as a sort of a social mechanism for value exchange. So, lots of, lots of, lots of rich things we could be talking about and we will be talking about. But why don't we use that then as a launching pad to introduce our guests? Nikki Enright and Lana Swartz, Welcome, guys.
3: Thanks for having us. Hello there.
1: A real pleasure. You are our first guests ever on Money Reimagined. You know, once the Hall of Fame is created, that are going to pass through the the money reimagined building are going to see you guys your photos right there at the very beginning
4: nice
3: will it be on a blockchain yes with a giant globo
1: Globo. Globo. (laughs) Yes.
4: yes.
1: the globo will greet them as they come into the door (laughs) which is actually a perfect segue thank you very much sheila because i'm gonna (laughs) ping to you nikki first Mm -hmm. of all have you tell us a little bit what the globo project was all about but before that Let's have a listen to this brief clip and I'll explain what it is once we hear it.
4: Two Globos for $1. Global exchange, two for a dollar. You can give me your tired, torn American dollars for two crisp new Globos.
1: So that is the opening to a video, which is when I first met you. We worked on a video a number of years ago now. We were walking around the Diamond District, 47th Street, which is near the Wall Street Journal where I used to work. You were doing this act, this art, performance. Art project. Yes, mm-hmm. this performance that you've been doing, wearing a sandwich board, yep. selling your Globo currency under a special deal, a two for one deal, which <laughs> exactly. was delightful. Tell us what the project was all about, what you were trying to do as you were interacting with people in the street.
4: Gladly. The Globo, I created it in 2008, soon after the economy collapsed and everyone was thinking about the economy and money and the collapse and how could this happen. And I've always been interested in money to begin with, and my father was a financial planner. Money is very deep interest of mine, the abstract notion of money to begin with. Also, at that time, I was thinking about the uh, discrepancy between my family in Ecuador, where I was born, and my family in New York in terms of our ability to earn money and our ability to visit each other. So in other words, because I'm living in the American economy, I could work, earn a very powerful currency, globally speaking, the U.S. dollar, and go and visit my family in Ecuador, whereas in Ecuador, originally using the currency called the sucre, and then eventually dollarizing, Ecuador is a dollarized economy, so even though it's technically a sovereign nation, it uses the U.S. dollar as its only Currency, which I find to be extremely strange, and there are many countries like that in Ecuador, that same dollar is, seems to be worth less than in the United States, and it's also harder for people to earn enough to travel the world the way Americans can, and we take it for granted, not to mention you know a whole host of other problems in terms of immigration visas and things like this that Americans also take for granted to be able to just travel not only to be able to afford it but mostly just an American passport. Is basically like a three-month visa in practically everywhere you want to go, whereas an, an Ecuadorian has the test to get visas for practically every country in the world, and they have to be able to afford to travel. And so this discrepancy right in my family is symbolic of the huge inequities of the global economy, the exploitation that takes place and everything. And so that's really what inspired the global. I wanted to make a statement about global currency, and also the idea of potentially having something like a global minimum wage that would attack this inequity in terms of people's value and worth of their time and and life energy.
1: But as you go down the street interacting with people, what I found fascinating is the conversations you would have, the kind of confusion in some respects. They're asking questions about, well, is it valuable? talked a little bit about that cuz i found that to be a really interesting exchange.
4: Yeah, well it's the interesting thing about it is that they that people will question the globo in a way that they rarely if ever question their own currency that's in their pocket, right? their cash. Ultimately any question that you pose to the globo, which is an artist's project, could be posed about the cash in your pocket. So, for example, one of the questions would be is it real? And my response would always be you're holding it in your hand. You're seeing it with your eyes. It's obviously a real thing, right? Just as real as a dollar, you know? And they're like, but no, you know what I mean? Is it, is it real? And this gets at what you were talking about in your intro with Sheila, which is the idea that this is a con or this is a scam of some kind, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and I feel like in a way, they are right? all of this money <laughs> all of these currencies including the US dollar are a scam and a con it's just that they don't think of it that way right they think of it like the dollar is perfectly legit and everything is hunky dory with the dollar but here comes the globo and that's got to be a con and a scam and it's unreal and then a lot of people also they don't know that all currencies are fiat currencies meaning that they're not backed by anything so they kind of have this idea like you were saying that there's something backing the U.S. dollar. And that's what makes the Globo worthless, that there's nothing backing it. And so then we talk about that. And they also ask like if they can use it. My response to that is always like, as far as I'm concerned, that's like my disclaimer, right? <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, you can use it anywhere for anything. It's just hilarious. you know. It's such an interesting way to interface with people. And the A-frame that I'm wearing gives me license to approach people and not be scary or, or seem like a scammer. I, I'm, I'm like an official person. It, it actually looks like I'm a money exchanger. Like you said, I'm selling Globos, but I actually think I'm exchanging Globos, right? I'm, I'm a money exchange. Yes. I'm like a walking Globo money exchange. Yeah, yeah. Exchange.
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right. You're a broker. Like yeah, a broker. I'm a broker.
2: I love this, Nikki. So I'm obsessed with the Globo. I want one from my wall. I want wallpaper Globos. I love it. I have so many questions I want to ask you about, but I want to start with just the kind of this notion of what you created artistically. When it came down to really ink the globo, right, to mint the globo, if you will, yeah. how did you think about the imagery there? And I know you said you were pulling from your understanding. I want to get into your family history as well, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. But first, how did you think about that? It's well, interesting to me, right? We have so many symbols on our money. Yeah, There's like the eye exactly. and the pyramid on dollars. Like, so how did you think about that?
4: That's exactly right. That's exactly how I thought of it. My initial process was to do some research and actually look at the symbols on all these different currencies around the world. And then I chose ones that I felt like seemed appropriate for a global currency. And then I just started to put these things together. And, you know, I'm also a DJ, so I always bring this kind of remix or mashup mentality to my art. Basically, the Globo was built with symbols from over 25 different currencies that were put together. Some of the imagery is original. And then the bill that I built it on top of was a 5,000 sucre bill, which is one of Mm. the bills Mm -hmm. from the original, not the original, but the last Ecuadorian currency before dollarization. That's an interesting bill to me because it has this native indigenous Ecuadorian on it. It's this like red-faced native person named Ruminawi. I love that bill, and I miss that. To me, it's such a fall from grace that the sucre went out of business, and then now we use these dollars, because the sucres had rumiñawi on it. For an Ecuadorian, they can kind of tell that underneath all of these symbols, there is maybe a sucre.
2: I love that. And I think it's so interesting that there is a political element to this, clearly. I mean, the choice to kind of bring forth this indigenous personality that would be known to a subset of people in the world of global citizens. And then, of course, we can't separate from the fact that Ecuador, as you noted, did have to dollarize essentially because of monetary management, even though I think at the time there was a pretty anti-American sentiment politically and the political establishment there. But nevertheless, that was a move that needed to be made. And it's interesting to kind of think about Lots of places that did move to dollarization that are now looking to crypto as a way to kind of break that cycle of dependency on the U.S., which is a political dependency as much as it's an economic kind of dependency. Right.
4: Yeah, I think of it as neocolonialism in a sense. I mean, ultimately, to me, the whole notion of a sovereign nation is called into question if you don't have your own currency. You know, that's that's kind of an important part of being a sovereign nation, in my opinion. I mean. At least historically, like I would love to see a world in the future going forward where that's not the case, where actually something like the global or like cryptocurrency was actually global and it had nothing to do with a country's sovereignty. At this stage in the game, you know, sovereignty is questioned.
2: Yeah. Well, I also think that one thing you you noted as well is just this emotional connection people have to currency places I've lived in the world, if I come across you know, a rupee or I come across a bot or whatever it might be, I have an emotional reaction to that. I remember those times. I think that can't be discounted. So we think about currency as soft power. We think of money as soft power. We think of money as this kind of like suspension disbelief Michael and I spoke about earlier as this value exchange. But there's also this emotional, almost patriotic, and a case not to get jingoistic, but this kind of notion that you have this connection, which is exploited, I think, a lot of times by who is symbolized on the money. Is it the royalty? Uh, Is it the right? Like, I
1: think it's fascinating.
4: Exactly. That's why it's uh, controversial that uh, Harriet Tubman should be put on the $20 bill, which Obama approved and then Trump shut down.
1: So I think this is a great opportunity to bring Lana in. First of all, congratulations on your new book called New Money, How Payment Became Social Media. And I've had a quick look at that. I didn't get a chance to sort of dive through the whole thing. But it seems that some of these issues that Nikki is talking about, you deal with here that that money is this communication tool. It's a kind of a value projection tool. It's a mechanism within our communication culturally.
3: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, I'm a media studies scholar, which means I kind of sit at the intersection of history, anthropology and sociology but of and always thinking about communication and media technologies. And in that field, I'm kind of one of the few people who have said, "Hey, wait a minute, money is something that does all of the things we talk about media and communication technologies is doing." So, for example, historians of the nation-state and of paper tell these stories about how print culture, meaning newspapers, really created the nation state, created what scholars call an imagined community.
1: Benedict Anderson, he was a professor of mine at Cornell. He was my advisor. So yes, a fantastic book.
3: Yeah. So as Anderson describes, the print culture pulled the nation state together and allowed people to imagine themselves as kind of a community of shared fate. By the same token, paper currency, national currency, did many of the same things. There's another scholar who talks about how the emergence of national currency turned peasants into Frenchmen, allowed them to see themselves as a shared economic community, a shared community of fate. And the design of paper currency was you know, designed to educate a largely uneducated, illiterate population about their shared past, their shared history, and was a kind of vector of propaganda in that sense tell particular versions of that shared past. So it does matter, even today, even when cash seems to be less ubiquitously used in the United States, it's one of the few times we come in contact with iconography of the federal government, you know, in our daily lives. So even today, it absolutely does matter. And, you know, I actually own a stamp, I bought it off of Etsy, that an artist made that allows you to apply the face of Harriet Tubman on -hmm. top of Andrew Jackson. And kind of rethink the stories that money can tell. One of my (laughs) good friends and collaborators, Taylor Nelms, is an anthropologist, and his field site is Ecuador. And he studies, you know, dollarization in Ecuador. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that he's told me that I think is so fascinating is that because Ecuador is a smaller change economy, dollar coins are really popular and really widely used. Mm -hmm. And so almost all of the US Sacajawea minted dollar coins have wound up in Ecuador and have pooled in Ecuador. Mm-hmm. And many of the folks that he talked to, you know, who work in marketplaces, et cetera, said that they felt a kind of identification with Sacagawea and they projected mm-hmm. onto her as an indigenous woman, a kind of kinship. You know, she was embraced and overlaid with a kind of Ecuadorianness.
1: Makes sense. Fascinating. Lana, you also, though, you know, this is you looking at sort of traditional money, but I mean, I encountered you first, you did some very early work on Bitcoin and looking at some of these similar kinds of ideas, the semiotics of it, the idea that you know imagery and all of these sort of myths almost got imbued into the conversation around Bitcoin. What do you take away from that? And how do you translate what we've learned from traditional currencies to what might be the process by which we reimagine a future that is built upon digital construct of money?
3: Yeah, I mean, listening to you kind of list off all the memes and foundational myths and foundational memes, I guess you could say, (laughs) um, of the digital currency space, you know, really made me think back to those early days of Bitcoin and the early research I was doing with people who were mining Bitcoins in their basements or mining them in the background of their laptops. So, you know, thinking about the really early days and how at that time, things have changed quite a bit. There was a real fixation on the idea that Bitcoin would be free from human institutions and free from human foibles and free from the need of human governance and would be kind of this purely market-based money backed by a you know, new kind of digital gold and managed not by human experts and all of their problems. But then all these early Bitcoin people ever did was really talk and create community and create ways to govern themselves and create ways to think about this project. So it was so fascinating and ironic to me to see that even though there was this vision of a pure market, community and governance and this kind of shared community of belief kept resurging. We can't seem to leave it behind as humans.
1: What does it tell you now, though? Because I think that the point that we were making earlier on about the nation state, and Sheila was reflecting on the beginnings of. The United States, the beginnings of the you know fight against British power, and the importance that money played in all of that. And so it's, it struck me there's a, this formation of community being a really important part of what the money is saying about that community. And yet you, you hear all the time about the tribes of crypto, right? It's not just Bitcoin; it's, it's the XRP <laughs> Army, or it's you know, they've all got their own tribes. It sounds to me like they're all sort of trying to building their own mythology.
3: I love those historical anecdotes. And one of the things I think is really interesting, if you look historically at money, is that actually in the United States, there was not a solidified official national currency that was dominant over all other privately issued currencies, whether that was banknotes from privately issued banks or scrip from major employers or foreign currencies. Yeah. So there really wasn't this kind of Monetary monopoly in the form of the US dollar until well after the Civil War. And it took a lot of regulation to kind of make that happen. It took taxation on these various, you know, wildcat and other currencies. Historically, more often than not, money has been plural and multiple. And we've been, of course, part of monetary communities, but we've been part of multiple different monetary communities. There's fascinating research about how. When someone entered New York City from their small town in the 1800s, they were used to living in a small community where everyone knew everyone and everyone knew everyone's grandparent and you knew where everybody lived. And so, for the most part, people didn't barter per se, but they kept tabs and they kept records and they settled up at regular intervals. And money really wasn't part of their daily lives in the same way. But then, when they arrived in the new modern metropolis, they suddenly had to navigate. A tremendous variety of different monetary forms. And they had to know just at a glance, if a form of money was counterfeit, if it came from a fictitious bank that never existed, if it came from a bank that had gone bankrupt, if it was a scrip that may be accepted in one city, but not in another. And it was very easy to lose value by taking bad money. David Hinken, who's a historian actually of what he calls city reading, which is all the forms of reading someone had to do in the 1800s, living in a city like New York, one of the most important forms was just at a glance being able to navigate a tremendously complex monetary system. And it is true that in many parts of the world, money is still plural. People in Ecuador are using Ecuadorian minted currency that basically is dollarized under the hood, and they're using U.S. currency people in various parts of the world are using five or six different currencies in their everyday life, including something like airtime. So historically, and throughout most of the world, more often than not, money has been really complex. We tend to think of like the dollar in this kind of like mass media form as being kind of normal, but it may just kind of be this like aberrant period where Mm. we lived with one money form. Super
2: interesting, and I think that part of
3: what I find fascinating about this is that
2: around the time of the Civil War, one of the reasons that the U.S. Treasury came in and basically said all that money, a, it's really easily counterfeited, so we have to kind of figure out how we can create less of that and how we can kind of right. standardize, standardize yeah. exactly. But it was also deeply political. The same time that there was, the flag came down, they were like, "This is the flag of the United States now," and the Dixie flag, like that, not official, right? Similarly, these other banknotes, or such as they were, those other forms of money no longer in circulation, fraudulent, de facto, and now we have these greenbacks, actually is what they called them. That's when that that term came from. Mm -hmm. There was control around that, but it was also this effort to kind of bring together this fragmented country and to say, we are now moving forward. With one form of currency, with one flag, with one government, with one structure, you know, et cetera. And there was obviously a lot of resistance to that over the course of time. So in fact, what was happening was after the Civil War during Reconstruction, there was this like illicit use in the South of older forms of currency, which again we're talking like a matter of years here, that had been basically outlawed, which I find really, really fascinating when you think about the culture around money and how important money is to the creation of culture, both politically and socially.
3: Yeah. And at various points in history around that same time, there was a real crisis around money supply, not meaning in an economic sense, but in the literal sense of not having minted enough currency to have a functioning economy. So, in some ways, we can think about national currency as a common public infrastructure to do capitalism with in everyday life. And if we think about paper currency and state-issued currency, it's like very real, like the actual physical material pieces of paper, you need to have enough of them in the right places and not have them all pool up in the big cities. You have to figure out how to get them to the country and that sort of thing. So big part of what I think about is like, all right, how can we take some of these lessons and apply them to the digital future?
1: The fact that we're talking about this intersection between the nation state and money then takes us to this extra level, which is the international sphere. And of course, it's remarkable in many respects that we went from that civil war environment you know, that you were both talking about where we had multiple forms of currency. And it really wasn't until later on that we established the dollar as this, the single currency of the United States to a point now where, you know, by some measures at least, the United States has never been more dominant in terms of the currency in the global sphere, we talk about like, you know, 70% of all trade and, and you know, a similar amount of, in terms of reserve currency holdings and investments and the dollarization of everything, everywhere. And yet, this narrative, which we saw play out with Jerome Powell, the Fed basically opening up swap lines on a massive scale in March to make sure that all these central banks would have dollars because the one thing that their banks needed was dollars. That itself also spoke to the vulnerability of the system, that the global system is now realizing that this dependency on the dollar is dangerous. And it's happening at the same time that there's an alternative emerging and there's a technological alternative. And there are countries like China and there are companies like Facebook and its its partners within the Libra project who are trying to build these alternatives to something that could be essentially replacing the dollar as a hegemon. Interesting moment given that we are also at this, challenging time when it comes to confidence in leadership and confidence in American leadership specifically. Nikki, you know, given mm-hmm. that you, know, you called your, uh, your currency the global, maybe, maybe, maybe the global becomes the global standard after the mm-hmm. dollar. I'm not sure. Why not? Yes. <laughs> yes. Global Gets my vote.
3: vote. I want one too.
1: <laughs> All right. Yeah.
4: Yep. And I would add to what you're saying, Michael, that there's also this political push towards things that we've never had a political push towards, like universal basic income, you know. at the same time as everything else you just named.
1: And I think also our economy has changed so much. We live in a digital economy, right? Right. And a digital economy is borderless. We don't know where that strange avatar using number-based Twitter account that's trolling me at the moment is actually based. I don't know who that person, or maybe it's even a bot, What jurisdiction do they belong to? So the whole conversation around place has changed. And I would think, therefore, that the money needs to change, right?
4: It's already changed in a way like the U.S. dollar has already kind of gone the digital route anyway. The actual bills that people are hoarding in in offshore accounts and everything That's not the real issue. The real issue is the digital idea of the hoarding huge numbers of the abstraction of massive wealth. You know, it's become controversial whether or not an institution can choose to not accept cash. Like lately, for the last couple of years, I've gone to places where they're like, we don't accept cash. That's a huge change. And it's controversial because a lot of people have only cash. Usually the poorest people ironically, are the ones who only can use cash. By saying we only accept abstract digital dollars, you're actually excluding people who only have cash, you know?
1: Right. And now you're opening up a a pet topic of mine because the reason I would argue, and I think Sheila can relate to this as well, I'm sure you can too, Lana, but I would argue that the poor are cash dependent is because the political infrastructure of the banking system is built upon the requirement that one must identify oneself. And that in itself is a political project. That's a nation state concept of who you are, what your identity, your birth certificate, all that sort of stuff. And there are regimes and positions around the world where it's very hard for people to do that. Credit scores and things like that are also things that need to be amassed. And so the idea of building a record about myself that depends upon this political infrastructure is what makes it very difficult for the poor and therefore cash is important. So what are we going to do when everything goes digital? But the point I also want to just highlight, and this is actually going to segue to Lana in a second here, is that, yes, the dollar is digital already. It's digital money. But the big difference between, say, a digital entry in a bank account and, say, Bitcoin, or in potentially the future, a central bank digital currency, is that they are trying in that latter case to mimic cash in that it doesn't depend upon the account ownership So people often point to Venmo and say, oh, we've already got Bitcoin. And the answer is, no, you don't, because Venmo (laughs) resides above the banking system, which still has all of that stuff going on underneath it. Nonetheless, this is a segue. I, I did pick up reading the first chapter of your book, Lana. Venmo is working its way into the cultural practices of certainly of younger people who use it. And you've got some insights, I think, into how it's kind of a form of social media. It's like this merging of money and social media.
3: I teach at the University of Virginia and all my students use Venmo. And we always have a day where we sit in class where we say, okay, we're actually going to spend some time looking at other people's Venmo feeds. And they all sheepishly admit that they do that all the time anyway. That's where the (laughs) realest information is to be had. So, you know, who is actually hanging out, who's actually going places. And that is becoming more and more of a known practice. So people are beginning to add that kind of layer of like social performance so my students will tell me that they never code rent payments or utilities payments they never annotate those with such boring terms they'll usually add like margarita glasses or you know (laughs) something a little bit more fun so that they can perform for those kind of viewers wow yeah wow
1: I look at this. I have Venmo. It's how I hand out my meager allowance. Locked look, down. Right. <laughs> but I never, I, I, it's totally private. And I look at all Locked these people down. I know, my contacts, and I'm watching what they're paying. And it, it seems anathema to me. I'm like, why on earth <laughs> yeah. would you be sharing my transactions? Yeah. But is, I'm pretty it, sure I this, could back the st- out
2: the entire student roster of my child's piano teacher. <laughs> <That's
1: right. laughs> but lo- what's going on there, Lana? I mean, they're actually more sharing this younger generation. I just think that stuff should be private.
3: Yeah, I mean, I do think that the younger generation is more savvy than we might think. So they turn it off private when they want to perform something to the people that might be stocking their Venmo feed, and then they turn it back on private when they you know, are getting money from their parents, for example. <laughs> There's a savvy ability to use privacy settings to their benefit. But I just want to mention two art projects that I think are super fascinating on this topic. One is called Vice Mo which is a project that pulls from Venmo's public API for mentions of sex, drugs, and alcohol, and then just kind of puts it on as a feed on their website. So you can see, like, Michael C. paid somebody (laughs) for whatever. Okay. Yeah, but then you click on Michael, and then you can see all his other transactions. You can see, you know, and just really drill (laughs) down. And to even elaborate that further, another artist named Hang Du Thi Duke, who made a project called Public by Default where she did profiles of what she calls the humans of Venmo. So she was able to find a couple and look at them arguing basically and splitting things and kind of trace the whole contours of their relationship. She found someone else who ate tons and tons of pizza and nachos and her whole account was just like junk food. And for each of them, a health insurance company might be interested in the fact that your eating habits aren't great. Or an ex-boyfriend who might be trying to stalk you or do violence might be interested in the fact that you go to lunch in the same place every day at the same time. So she really shows, you know, both the kind of poignant stories that lie at the heart of our financial lives, but also the kind of perils of what happens when all of that is public, not just to our friends and frenemies, but to insurance companies, employers, and so on.
4: Mm -hmm. Hmm. It's wild.
1: Privacy, Nikki, is for people of my generation, certainly a lot of the folks in the crypto community as well, like this seems to be the issue of our day. We've had the Cambridge mm-hmm. Analytica scandal, and we've had all of these breaches, great concerns that China's digital currency is going to be a panopticon that surveys us, right? Mm-hmm. So we feel as if this is it. It's
4: just a moment which have to sort of prove privacy. But, but no one seems to care. No one seems to care. Yeah, it just continues. Like, I mean, I'm one of them. I I hate to admit it, but like I'm on Facebook and I'll see that Facebook is yet embroiled in yet another scandal that I don't approve of. And it's, you know, frustrating and everything. But I stay on Facebook because I have a lot of friends on there and I keep up with them. And it's like birthdays and this and that, you know, I have my reasons. And it's like, even if they move, we're still in touch. So it's kind of like to me, it's basically like a huge Rolodex with benefits. But ultimately, I stay, right? And I think Mm -hmm. that's part of the problem that with all of this, the the privacy keeps on getting chipped away little by little, but, but we continue to tolerate that.
3: And, you know, to kind of bring that idea of convenience, you know, using things we hate, but just using them because they're convenient back to the question of money. We keep saying that the dollar isn't based on anything or isn't backed by anything, but it is backed by the whole world's institutional and technological systems, you know, like there's tremendous path dependency that keep the U.S. currency in place, as well as you could argue like the health of our institutions and the might of the U.S. Army and all of those things. And so even if we begin to feel that the U.S. dollar or state-issued currencies is illegitimate or feel like it is alienating in terms of, you know, our our self-identity as members of a community, or feel like it's not doing such a good job at being a kind of global currency. There's so much that goes into it and sustaining it. And that kind of is what backs a currency or the technological systems that undergird it. You know, we may hate the dollar just like we hate Facebook, but that doesn't mean we're going to stop using it anytime soon, which is, makes it all the more scary that Facebook might come up with a currency because we, yeah. we may hate Facebook and Facebook may have the worst brand trust, but that doesn't mean we won't start using it because right. of convenience.
2: Well, I think a lot of things, it's it's even more than convenience. It's a tipping point. We tend to outsource trust. We do it all the time. It's people who vote down a party line. They don't do any of their own independent research on candidates. They just kind of like, oh, I affiliate with this particular party. Therefore, I'm voting on the party line. I'm just clicking off the box of whoever you know is is affiliated with that party. We outsource our trust and our diligence all the time. And so to some extent, People use certain social media platforms over others because that's what their friends are using. That's what their family's using. And they just go Mm -hmm. use it. And then you hit an escape velocity where you're just embedded in that particular platform because it's where everybody that you interact with is. And that's different generation by generation. And it's not that any of the other ones don't have TikTok, you know? These all have their own flagged issues and kind of known risks. And yet you've kind of generationally, largely, and geographically, we've all kind of landed in the ones that make the most sense for our communities and the culture that we see ourselves as most being a part of, which then is self-reinforcing. And the same thing I think is going to happen with digital currency. There's no question. So the one thing we haven't mentioned during our time together, which I think is critical to mention, is China. The fact that CBDC, to your point, Michael, is coming. It's coming fast. It's in trials now all over cities in China. And so we're just waiting to see digital RMB take off. And it's going to be an interesting question to see if China can carry some of the weight of the digital currency revolution because of the scope and the spread they seem to be planning and how wildfire they want to get adoption on that. And so when you think about the gravity and that tipping point that happens culturally, it's going to be a really interesting thing to see what happens once this is widely available beyond the trials that it's currently in. And I think the same thing is going to be true of whatever the Fed decides to do in the digital dollar space Uh,
1: as well. It is. can't help but think that because money is so central to our sort of transactional relationships with each other that when these new forms come into play, it's going to have I would think I'm again I'm not a young person i, I you know I'm not, I'm not that young I might be seeing things differently I think it's going to challenge our notions of what is private and what is public and where do we want those lines to be drawn and I'll just I'll say one other thing about privacy it's it's not just about do I want Facebook prying into my activities or not you know, there's a strong argument to make that money doesn't function without some level of privacy. There's this idea that, you know, a dollar has to be fungible. One dollar cannot be worth more than another dollar or less than another dollar. They have to be interchangeable as legitimate commodities. And if you can sort of tie one entry in a ledger to a particular history that leaves it vulnerable to some alternative treatment, whether it's like being seized by the government for a money laundering past or anything like that. It has that history. Its value is different. You need to actually break with the history for the money to actually have its value. It was very interesting during the, you know, when the FBI seized Bitcoins in the Silk Road seizures, you know, you saw that those FBI seized Bitcoins commanded a higher value in the market than other ones because it was perceived that they'd all been whitewashed. There was no history to them anymore because it had gone through that process. There's a lot of really unanswered questions about how we are going to live with a world in which everything is digitalized.
4: Thinking
3: about China to kind of pivot from something that is real and coming to something that's kind of totally speculative and sci-fi, I always think about the book Diamond Age by Neil Stevenson, where he imagines a future where there are lots of different, he calls them files, but basically nations that are global and distributed and you're a member of a nation, but that nation is not territorial. You can be a member of that nation anywhere in the world and transact with other members of that nation anywhere in the world and communicate mostly within your own little bubble, but it doesn't really matter where you are. And I remember seeing a group of Chinese tourists paying entirely through WeChat in Vegas and using WeChat in Vegas Basically, never leaving the communicative or transactional community of China, even though they were physically located in Nevada. And they're even, you know, where I live in Charlottesville, Virginia, there are Chinese restaurants that accept payments through WeChat. In many ways, I can imagine a future where these nations, these collectives, and I don't mean nation necessarily tied to a nation state, but other kind of collectivity, are global. And everywhere, but kind of nowhere at the same time, and each beholden to their own rules and each beholden to their own transactional communities.
1: So, I like the fact that you, you used the word I can imagine.
3: Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> is this is what this
1: topic's all about. It's about what the show's all yeah, about. Yeah, I figured but... I
3: would go a little crazy <laughs> with
1: some sci fi. <laughs> no, it, it is exactly where it needs to be. Like, that's what the future is, right? It's an imagined state. And all of the institutions that we now rely upon were things that were imagined at some point, right? The nation state itself and, and everything else. So I'm going to ask you guys to crystal ball, as we're going to wind this up right now, both of you, when you do imagine, what does the future of money look like in, say, 20 years time?
3: Well, as someone who is largely you know, a historian of communication technologies, I think a lot about the history of the internet. And I think a lot about how in the 80s and 90s, people were talking about. Homesteading on the electronic frontier, and they were asking questions like, "Do the laws of, yeah. you know, meat space nations apply to the coming cyberspace?" And they had these utopian, in some cases, dystopian others, but really radical visions for, in many ways, like a anarcho libertarian alternative world that would happen via the internet. And instead, what we got was Facebook. While we were busy imagining all of these utopian alternatives, we allowed a corporation to kind of come in and take over and be the primary infrastructure for all aspects of our everyday life. And now, even though we hate it, we can't seem to untether ourselves from it. So my big fear, and this is my kind of pessimistic vision, is that while we're spending all of this time talking about crypto and talking about Bitcoin and talking about our crypto libertarian utopias, we're just going to allow the same old corporations or maybe some new ones to kind of creep in and give us something we hate, that is surveillance, that is all the things we don't like about traditional currencies and the traditional banking system, plus a bunch of new stuff that we also hate. But it's just going to be such a boring, ordinary part of our lives that works pretty well most of the time for most people. That we kind of can't seem to find traction and find our way out of it. So that's my pessimistic <laughs> crystal ball. Oh,
1: wow.
4: wow. Okay. <laughs> um,
1: All righty. I mean,
3: smoke filled skies, Michael, right? <laughs> but so the question there is, and I'll just leave this as a question, is how do we prevent that?
1: Right. And, and, and I think this is what a lot of people, hopefully, are folks who listen to this show are trying to work on. How do we get there? And, and I think artists, Nikki, have a really important yes, role to Nikki. play in this, right? So, How are you confronting this? You're constantly striving to get people to open their eyes.
4: Yeah, I think that it's a very interesting take. Lana's got this very down-to-earth kind of rooted and therefore perfectly legitimately pessimistic view of what's coming (laughs) down the pike. Whereas for me, in some ways, precisely because I'm not a scholar of economics, etc., it's much more of an envisioning of what I want to see as opposed to what I'm afraid I'm about to see or what's coming. I don't know about 20 years, but I would say that in the future, what I would like to see in terms of money, first of all, would be some kind of global currency. Absolutely, I feel like there has to be, even if it's coexisting with uh, local currencies and maybe uh, bring back the diversity of currencies that Lana was talking about too, which is really interesting. I was thinking of it linguistically as in the past diversity of languages that then gets kind of whittled down and all these languages are dying because there are these huge languages that are the lingua francas, like English, that are taking over. It's kind of sad to think that uh, we would just have this one global currency, and especially if it was like Facebook currency, you know, that's obviously a dystopia. The positive spin of it would be just a lot harder to exploit so many people around the world because you could have some kind of Equity in terms of what they earn, what their life is worth, what their hours are worth, and also even regulate that in terms of like a minimum wage, which I think, you know, minimum wage is a great idea and it's barely been used. The federal minimum wage hasn't been raised in 10 years in the United States. And there are many places where minimum wage is ignored. And that's also where it dovetails with immigration. And I think that these things are very linked. You can't really attack the global exploitation of the workforce by having a global minimum wage unless you also were to look at immigration. Because right now we have corporations that are multinationals and they they can do whatever they want. They've got all the power and the capital and they're straddling borders. And meanwhile, people are stuck in the country of their birth. They can't get out without the permission embodied in a passport. They can't get into another country without the permission of these border bureaucrats, and it keeps the system in place. So it seems to me like people would have to be able to be multinational, just like a corporation. If people could be multinational, and there was a global minimum wage, and there was a global currency either coexisting or on its own with other currencies in the world, then I would like to imagine a world where there's like respect and dignity in People's work and people giving their time away to a boss to create wealth in the world that actually was like valuing human rights and and human beings and human lives.
2: I really love that. It's so hard to be optimistic in the context that we're living in, right? I mean, I'm literally looking out at this like smoky situation, but nevertheless, I am an optimist. And so I think that the important thing to note is that why is there a lot of panic about the digital RMB? Why is there a lot of panic about the Libra? Token. No matter what institution, public or private, issued some kind of digital currency, there would be very strong criticism and feelings about that. The Fed, the PBOC, whatever, right? Any powerful institution, public or private, that engaged in this space is going to come under a tremendous amount of criticism. And I think we heard some of that today. It's understandable why that is the case. I do agree with Yulana that if we did just digitize our current infrastructure without making fundamental modifications to the system itself, the underlying system itself, that would be a miss and it would be a shame. I think that alone would actually provide benefits to a lot of people. And I think those benefits need to be acknowledged as well. I think digitization as a general matter is going to ease friction and access and create on-ramps for people that don't currently have that. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. At the same time, it will exclude because of digital divide issues, connectivity issues, we talked about earlier about poor and cash and, and, and the way that a lot of people who are impoverished are using paper money. It's going to create new pathways and new patterns of inequity. And inequity is rooted in multisystemic connections. It's through, to your point, Nikki, immigration system, political system, sovereign debt we didn't talk about. There's so many reasons why some countries have more power and why some people have more power and why others don't. But I think it's important to recognize that. Again, it's any institution that we're moving in this space is getting roundly, openly skeptical criticism about that movement. And frankly, I think that's a little unfair because I do think that some of those institutions have the ability to engage in experimentation that they can fund and they can kind of shape. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are the ones that should be controlling or dominating the system. And I think there have been some efforts to ensure that's not what happens. A lot of the code that's being developed here is open source there are efforts, I think, in large parts of the crypto community to really push back against this and to envision a different kind of model. I am not a crypto libertarian by any means. It's not a position that I politically or otherwise hold. But I think that you can see where that impetus comes from, where the culture, the immune culture, the things that have been created around crypto have emerged. It's, it's through a very healthy frustration with the existing systems. So all of that being said, you know, if you were to ask me, where do I see this kind of moving? I think we're going to have a combination of the two. I think we're going to have a digitization of a financial infrastructure via things like CBDC and things like different kinds of stablecoin issued by all kinds of different players in consortium with each other or not. You know, all kinds of things are going to happen. I think you're going to see the curtain pulled back on the reality of how some of this already works. The fact that on the back end of many systems, there already is essentially a token being created. We just don't surface that and call it what it is. It's essentially that. When I worked at TechSoup, we really had TechSoup cash in the back end that we were holding in our stores, and that was what we were using to kind of provide donations to institutions. We were a donation provision service. So all that's already really happening. We're just pulling back the curtain and shedding light on that and saying, okay, now let's institutionalize that and think about if we can scale it and if we should scale it. But I also think we're going to see a lot more openness to new models that do not replicate the existing financial system, the existing payment rails and other things. Those are being developed. It takes time. They're being developed carefully. We have to think about latency, we have to think about security, and a lot of these issues, we're just not ready with that technically. But we're getting there. And I think that when those things really start to scale, which I think they will, I think we're going to see a downgrading, if you will, of some of the existing system architecture. And we're going to see an upgrading or uptake of some of the other newer things that are coming out. But there'll be a lot of failures before we hit Escape velocity in some of these things before we hit that moment, that tipping point where the culture around this is such that you're outsourcing your trust and you're willing to use something because your friends and family is it the way we've all made choices about the platforms we use today.
4: Everything you're saying reminds me of the battle for clean energy and the resistance that's there too by the existing coal system. It's the same thing. And it's it's like at at some point, obviously, that's got to give. And I think we're reaching that point, especially where you are, Sheila. Like people are seeing it. We're, living, yep. <laughs> we're living in climate change. And so obviously, there's only so much that the, the coal industry can do to maintain its power in this context.
3: I'm very heartened. And I do think there is reason for optimism because I do think that there has been a maturation in the space of people thinking about the future of money. So we're no longer... Solely thinking about the speculative value of a few crypto assets. And, you know, we're no longer solely thinking about becoming Bitcoin billionaires or whatever. We're no longer just adding blockchain to the end of a (laughs) startup and then letting that, you know, be hype. Instead, we're letting this be a moment where we can use this new technology to learn to see how important boring things are and to really carefully cautiously think through and like see systems new for the first time that were once really boring but are now really exciting and therefore are attracting some of the best and brightest to really work on them so i do think that there is reason for hope around that
1: i am so glad that we have rounded up in a optimistic (laughs) place and also that we what i think you were saying then lana that we have it's a process of learning and experimenting and we can test these things out which is the journey that i think we're on and there's a lot more to come which is Good news for Sheila and I because Money Reimagined is all about being on that journey. And we hopefully have countless other podcasts exploring what this experimental process is all about. So I'm gonna round it up there. I'm gonna thank you both. Lana, you know, a new book out very, very quickly. Where can people learn about you?
3: So my new book, New Money, How Payment Became Social Media, came out last month from Yale University Press. It's available everywhere books are sold. There's an ebook and an audio book. Check it out.
1: Fantastic. And Nikki?
4: My website is lightbolt.net, L-I-G-H-T-B-O-L-T.net, and the Globo's on there, and you can see the gallery installation of Globos. When it's not a performance, it's actually a gallery installation with frames and a briefcase full of Globos. That was once so, stolen, by yeah, the way. was once stolen from the World Bank. <laughs> the actually, great heist from the World, for the World
1: Bank. Bank, a World <laughs> yeah. Bank exhibit. In Washington. Oh God, it's I'm just obsessed. art. Yeah. It's, Money it's, heist, it's, the Globo yeah. heist. Uh, uh, then, it's it's uh, life imitating art. It's great. Totally.
4: And I would like to mention that I have an exhibit up right now at the Hunter East Harlem Gallery in New York City. They have a great website dedicated to this. It's called Census 2020. It's about the current census, but it's not C-E-N-S-U-S. It's S-E-N-S-E-U-S. So it's basically a meditation on the racial and ethnic classification boxes on the census, looking at that and the history of that and what those boxes imply in terms of other boxes it's an interesting show to check out so timely as well gallery.
1: really yeah. timely topic it's great stuff Alex. it's been a, an utter pleasure to have you both on the show and of course to work pleasure. with you against sheila you.
4: Thank, you thank you thank you so much for inviting us
1: my co-host sheila warren thank you so much this has been money reimagined come back and listen to the next episode Yay.
0: You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Michael Casey, Sheila Warren, Lana Schwartz, and Nikki Anright. Our musical theme is Shepherd, and this episode was produced and edited by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send an email to podcasts at Coindesk.com. And stay tuned for our inaugural episode this Saturday of Opinionated from Coindesk, where it features editor Ben Schiller goes beyond the opinion articles with some of the most compelling voices in crypto. This first episode features Nick Carter of Castle Island Ventures. That'll be Saturday. Stay tuned.